Welcome to the Boil Dow Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live, and there's lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. I'm Sam. Hiya, Sam. Hi, Don. How are you? Fancy meeting you here. Well, you know, it kind of happens for us. We're always hanging out in these coffee shops. Well, yeah, I mean, and I'm still not paying as much to the uh, the coffee industry as I did to the alcohol industry, I don't think, though. You know, I, I go to uh, happy hour at the end of the workday every day, and I get a large iced latte, and it costs about four fifty, And it's expensive. But I've been doing this ever since I got sober. When I first got sober, that's when coffee shops started opening up in the area. Yeah, but they were also selling coffee for a nickel. That would, They weren't selling... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not it. <laughs> Who are you calling an old-timer? Sonny. <laughs> but that, I justify it. I mean, I used to go to happy hour every day after work, and I, I spent a lot more than $4.50. Oh, yeah. And I was, that was back in the day when a beer was 70 cents. Well, there you go. Yesterday, you remember we had a fella show up at the meeting that had just driven in from Philadelphia like 30 minutes earlier yes, and showed up for this meeting. And I was talking with him uh, as we were heading to the coffee shop after the meeting. Was We were talking about drinks at bars and how expensive they are now. I mean, I cannot imagine oh, being an alcoholic and being able to afford it today. Yeah. I but, mean, I was buying fifths of vodka and drinking at home because those were about $16 at the time. I that's that's how much a damn drink is now. Well, <laughs> it's always been kind of high being an alcoholic. Well, <laughs> it's, it's kind of was there a double entendre? Maybe there? a little bit. I used <laughs> to get my paycheck and I would go to the grocery store and buy a case of Bush beer on Friday. Bush, and that Bush <laughs> was really cheap, mm-hmm. and it would. The idea was that case is going to last me through the weekend because <laughs> I got it so cheap. And it it fooled me every time. For some reason, I would be out of beer Saturday. Well, but see, that's because Carol was, like, stealing your stash from the, under the bush. Uh, I know. I'm not going to blame this on Carol. <laughs> I think I drank every one of those. <laughs> uh, well, we have a guest today. We do have a guest. Hi, guest. Who are you? My name is Karen. Hey, Karen. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Karen, thanks for being here. here. Yeah. Yeah, Pretty cool. When did you get sober? May 4th, 1997. (laughs) Just looked it up. I did. I had to. I wrote it on my hand before I came. (laughs) (laughs) What was it like? What was happening with you emotionally at the very end that made made it possible for you to come to AA and give up the last time? Did you come more than once? No. No? So you got sober the first time you came? Yes. Well, what was going on? Wow. That's a good question. So really what had happened was is I, I separated from my husband about three months before, and he was like one of my biggest enablers. 
it was just easy to drink around him because he would pick up a lot of the responsibility and I was able to do whatever I wanted. But I was miserable. I was miserable in my marriage prior to that. I think I was drinking like everybody else did for the effects and to escape. But after he left, reality started setting in and I didn't know if I was going to have my house, my kids, my car. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. I really didn't. And, uh, well, my story goes this way. I was following a spiritual master at the time, went out to the uh, sanctuary or Nashram in 60s terms. And while I was there, the thought hit me, I had to honor alcoholism. And I have it in my family. And uh, the story goes, I was at What do you mean you had to honor alcoholism? It ran in my family. And it's something that was never really talked about. Mm -hmm. And you know, under the covers, the secret. And for some reason, it was like, we have to look at that and honor it and recognize it as being part our of, own. You part know. of who you are. Right, right. That's and, what you were doing with your spiritual discipline. Right, so right. So it's kind of owning it. Right, it, yeah. right. Okay. You know, like like you look at your bright side and your dark side, yeah. looking at both sides of you, and that was a, a part of me. So uh, I was at Language of the Heart. And that's, that's a meeting in Greensboro. That was, no, that was the sanctuary. The heart master was called Language of the Heart. Oh. And, and funny that you should say that, because when I got off the plane from California, I called up Intergroup, and they said, oh, there's a meeting, 8 o'clock Sunday night. And I walked in, and it was Language of the Heart. You oh, felt cool right at home there. Oh, huh? God, I mean, it, it, that's you know. Cool. Yeah, it was very cool. It, you know, nothing happens by coincidence in the spiritual world, does it? So, yeah. Yeah. So when I got in there, I was muddled. I didn't know what was going on. I I love the chip system here. They said, if you want to start, walk with us. Didn't hear that, but I heard, do you want to start over? And I thought, yeah, I want to start over. That's oh. what I want to do. So I picked up a start over chip. And I love it. Your first chip was a start over, yes. which is, yeah. is kind of what we do. I mean, yeah. our, I, yeah. it, it yeah, is no a doubt. start over. It's a reboot of life. Well, no sure doubt about it. Is. No I, doubt about it. I started over, I can't tell you how many times I started over before I came to AA and giving up and then would drink again and then, okay, I'm going to start over <laughs> and not drink today. Whoops, didn't work. Yeah. You know, I love a, a friend in recovery I heard several years ago said something to the effect of every single one of us relapses. It's just some of us relapse before we get to the rooms and some of us relapse after we get to the rooms. Exactly. Right. So uh, what happened? So when I went to... Had you heard of AA? Well, I'm in, I'm in the... Uh, I was a mental health professional. I'm a nurse that worked in mental health. So I knew about AA. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know about AA, yeah. I guess. You so know, you knew I, it I, existed. Yeah, I knew it existed. I knew it, it was kind of what it was about. But I, I, I came to learn that until I came into AA, I didn't really know what alcoholism was about. You can read a lot of things in books you know, medically and, and, and see the little diagrams they show you of how it works. But until you're one and you get in and you learn through AA what alcoholism really is, you know, I, I didn't know. I didn't mm. know. And does that learning or did that learning for you of what alcoholism really is come? It, it, it really didn't come from, from the books and literature in AA as much as it did from the people? Did you learn it more so from people? Oh, I definitely learned it from people. We're, I, think, I think we're a word of mouth program. I think we have a lot of literature to read, no doubt about it. But I think most of the learning is through stories. Yeah, relating. You know, people's experience with alcoholism and what, you know, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. I think that's how it works for me. Did for a long time. So I want to get this timeline. You were at Language of the Heart, the church, or what was it? Sanctuary. Sanctuary. 
and you came to a realization that you wanted to honor your alcoholism, were you calling it your alcoholism? Well, I did. I, I said I wanted to. Yeah, I was. I was calling it alcoholism. So you had an idea that you were an alcoholic. I did. Yeah. I knew I knew a long time before, and the reason I did, it's like you have those little moments of awakening that you hear. You ignore them, but you know. And I remember being out with my ex-husband, <laughs> yes, and, uh, and I was drinking Irish coffees, which is one of my favorites at the time, and I ordered another one. He said, why are you ordering another one? You're already drunk. And I had to think about that. It was like, Ooh. why am I ordering yeah. another one? Because he was right. You know, and there were times afterwards where I would be out drinking and I wanted to stop and I couldn't. Mm. You know? So um, there were times out there, like when I fell down drunk and someone picked me up and took me home. And I realized at that point I shouldn't drink in public. I should drink at home. No. So there was like lots of things along the way that was making me recognize that something was wrong. Tucking it away. Mm-hmm. In your subconscious. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So did did you wind up stopping drinking so much in public? Did you become a, more of a home drinker? Oh, definitely. Yeah, that was my my experience yeah. too. Yeah. And and I I was like I called myself the bourgeois drinker because I knew I would go through <laughs> at least two bottles of wine, so I'd buy a good bottle of wine for the first round and a bad <laughs> bottle of wine for the second. At a girl. So. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's completely reasonable. Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> While you can taste it, drink the good stuff. <laughs> That's right. That's right. While you're aware. <laughs> so you had this awakening to honor your alcoholism, but so then you went right to AA or? Yeah. That that night I left the sanctuary May 4th, um, called into group, wound up at Language of the Heart, had a lady come up to me. And say, you need to do 90 meetings in 90 days. I thought, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> and, but I did it. I did 90 meetings in 90 days. And then I just kept doing 90 and 90 and 90 and 90 and 90 and 90. I literally detoxed in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Me too. I would sit in the chairs and my skin would crawl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I probably should have been in a rehab place. But I sat there and they told me, you know, don't worry. Just, you know, you'll be okay, you'll be okay, and I was. Yeah, the first first couple of meetings I went to, I was, like, tentative about this AA thing. But I realized that everybody that I was meeting was com- had an idea how to live sober, mm-hmm. and they were happy. And that was really attractive to me. And so I started going. And then I, w- I was at work at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I just started wanting to crawl out of my skin. That was I was like three or four days sober, mm-hmm. and I was determined to work. I can't quit working. I was like, going, what is the matter with me? I I didn't know what it was, and I was going, oh, I think maybe I need to go to one of those meetings. And so I got out. I had gotten a card. Now you can look it up on the internet nc23.org in our area <laughs> and i saw i got a card and there was a meeting at 10 30 and it was four blocks away from where i was the house i was working in and i went in there it was a women's meeting they didn't care they brought me right in made me welcome and it, and it was relief mm-hmm. but i had not identified that that feeling 
was actually what I was drinking at. And then I, and I was like, going, okay, now I got to go to meet. And I started going really to two meetings a day from that point on because uh, detoxing in NAA is, you need to be in a lot of meetings. You do. No doubt about it. Yeah. I actually, uh, the funny story about it is, is that when I was at the sanctuary, we were supposed to go into Dharma, which is sit with your spiritual master. And he was coming on at eight o'clock. And of course, I had stopped drinking Friday, the day that I got there. So this was Saturday night. Okay. And all of a sudden, I started feeling really bad. They're really bad. And mm -hmm. I told him, I can't go. I just can't go. And so I laid down and literally I was, you know, sweating. I was perspiring. I was vomiting. And I'm thinking I'm having a spiritual experience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I am. I'm thinking like Dharma is coming to me and I'm having a spiritual experience and I'm ridding myself of all this stuff. You know, he's cleaning me out. And uh, it took me about five years in the program to realize I was detoxing that night. <laughs> 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 Whatever well, it takes. That's right. That's well, right. The, the bottom can be a spiritual well, experience. No doubt about it. <laughs> no doubt about it. Yeah, I felt like hell the next day and, and then coming in that night, Sunday night. So I was pretty sick by the time I walked into the room. That's that's funny. I, I have, I'm an artist and a painter, and I had done a painting before I quit drinking about spirituality. And I took it to the therapy session i was in therapy i took it to talk to the therapist about it and it was a picture which i thought was really spiritual of a man with a head with light shooting out of his head but it he had one shoe on and one shoe off <laughs> and he was disheveled and a turned over bottle in the floor he was obviously a wreck but he was feeling the light come in and I was going this is about you know spiritual experience and the therapist said I wonder if this could be about alcoholism I was going what I'm not an alcoholic it was completely about alcoholism and I had no idea I was you know I was painting my subconscious mm. But, you know, I thought it was, I thought, I I no, thought that I was you. spiritual. I, I was there. Like a, I was know. there. You know? I didn't have anything like that going on. I my, my alcoholism experience was just absolute misery of uh, horrible, horrible hangovers, not being able to show up for work, and that drinking was the only thing that made life tolerable. And it wasn't. I wasn't able to successfully do that because at that point I did accept that it was making my life fall apart even more than it already was falling apart. So I came to AA. You know, I, I suppose I would be able to, with the help of a time machine, look back over those first six months of recovery and find some spiritual experiences in there. But the one for me that was so incredible was the um, the flying out at uh, at the end of the year, taking my grandmother out to New Mexico with to to visit family, and doing a, a layover, changing planes in Detroit, and finding an AA chip on the floor oh, wow. as we were boarding the the jetway to get onto the plane, and it was a one of those little aluminum twenty four hour medallions that we give out as start chips here, 
And for me, that was the you're going to be okay, Sam thing. Nice. And oh, that was my, I mean, I'm still chill. Yeah, so. that's yeah. a sign. Yeah, that's a sign. No doubt about it. Karen, what was an experience when you started working the steps? Did you get a sponsor right away? No, no. I didn't hear sponsor. I look back now, I was so muddled coming in. I wound up finding a meeting where there was maybe about five or six people, which was comfortable for me. I don't know if I could have been in a very large meeting in the beginning there. And I think there was a lady who actually sponsored me. In fact, she told me I fired her, but I don't remember it. <laughs> you know, It was probably about six months sober that I finally went to a, a women's meeting where they were talking about sponsorship. And they said, you know, you need to get a sponsor. You need to get a sponsor. So there was a lady who kept smiling at me at the meeting. And I said, would you be my sponsor? So... That's pretty much how I got it. But no, I had no idea what sponsorship was. Right then, this is what I heard. Don't drink, go to meetings, do gratitude. That's what I heard in my meetings. And uh, that's what I did. And that's about all you can handle at the very That beginning. was all I could handle. Yeah. That, that was all I can handle. And I, was, I went to a meeting the other day. They were talking about gratitude. And I, it made me reflect back. If it wasn't for gratitude, I wouldn't be sober today. How's that? Because in the beginning, I was so muddled and my life was falling apart that gratitude made me look at what I had instead of what I didn't have. And every day I woke up and I would, you know, thank the universe for my house, my kids, my car, my health, my sobriety. You know, I would just go down a list of things that I would thank the universe for supplying on that day. And... And that's what kept me going. Mm -hmm. That's really what kept me going. I, If I sat there and, and got caught up in what was happening in my life, I think I would have probably picked up a drink because it was falling apart. How long was it before you got a sponsor? It was six months. Six months. Six months before I got a sponsor. In the meantime, I think that the people that I was going to meetings with in the beginning, there was an old guy named Don McSee. Um, they would take me out to breakfast afterwards and, you know, people were talking to me about it. It's not like I wasn't hearing things to do. You were getting yeah. a little bit of a village sponsorship. Yeah, type of thing. I was, yeah. I was. Yeah. And, and I was going to meetings one or two a day, like you said in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, I had kids at the time, so I could come after work and I would try to go through the day before the kids got home. Um, the hardest time for me was the transit, it was 530. So there was a meeting here called happy hour. Right. Mm -hmm. And that transition time from work to being off, which is when I started drinking, I controlled my drinking it for about four years, but it was all about making it to the end of the work day and then I can start drinking. Mm -hmm. And so consequently, 530, ugh, it was awful. I had to be in a meeting. Mm -hmm. That was killer for me too. I got off work at 430 and made my way to once I got over the initial fear, made my way to Summit Club for the 6 o'clock meeting. I would get there about between 5 and 5.15 and just hang out, pay, paying attention to the this group of old-timer guys. These guys were, like, really old. I don't know, maybe Don's <laughs> age. Um, <laughs> they were, were probably 40 years old. <laughs> and, I, and I would sit there. I wouldn't join in yet or anything. I was still scared to death of people, but I loved listening and watching these guys in the kitchen at Summit Club because they, they turned into 12-year-olds when they were around each other. Having a good time. Yeah, they, they were having playing fun. Playing with each other. Yes. Yeah. 
And, uh, and then I would go to the six o'clock meeting. And for me, the, it was crazy, but this was my experience. Um, if I didn't drink on a weeknight, if I didn't start drinking before 7 p.m., I was not going to drink that night. And the reason being that I knew that the amount that I was going to drink, there was no way I was going to get up and go to work the next day if I started after 7. Yeah. And so right after work, that 5 o'clock hour was totally my witching hour. And if I made it to 7 o'clock, I was fine. And a 6 o'clock meeting got me to 7 o'clock. Mm-hmm. That transition is awful. It, I don't... It was like going to a meeting at 5.30 made me just, it's like, okay, I can do this now. I, you know, I, I can exist tonight without drinking. But for some reason, that it was like a witching hour. Mm-hmm. See, I think when you're a mom and a stay-home mom like I was, I didn't have that transition mm-hmm. time like you were talking about. So I was able to like, justify my drinking by going out with people to lunch, ordering a bottle of wine, mm-hmm. you know, then having more wine after that, you know, then having something before I picked up the kids. And then when the kids came home, it was about getting food ready and doing all that kind of thing. And maybe I'd drink with it. Maybe I didn't. But after they went to bed, then drinking would start again. So I didn't have like a direct transition period. I kind of drank throughout the day. Gotcha. Yeah. So it was a little bit different. For, that, for that's me. more normal for the end of someone's drinking career than, yeah, than, yeah, yeah. than the way that I did it. Because I was, I was like, it was like an iron claw. I was determined to not be an alcoholic. I'm interested in, I think that having a sponsor is, you can't really work the steps without a sponsor. Otherwise, if I were to do the steps without the aid of a sponsor, that's just me fixing me. But even so, in that six months, you can be definitely doing steps one and two if you're talking to other people about it. But at least one to realize, I mean, it's a big concept that I'm powerless over everything. So it's interesting. It's interesting that you say that because I think when I was in a meeting and I remember saying that looking at the steps because they had a series that we did big book. We did 12 and 12 and discussion. I remember going to the meeting one time, and I think it was about six months at that point, and I looked up and I, I said to the group, I said, I think I got step one. I mm-hmm. think I got step one. And really, what part of step one I got was I'm powerless over alcohol because I was still in full flight from reality. I thought my life was manageable. Okay. Oh, you still did. <laughs> well, yeah. you got first half of step yeah, one. I got, really the, first half. Down really I got well. the first half that I was powerless, and I just... I, I had no concept of how manage, unmanageable my life was. I really didn't. Yeah. You know? what, did, what did powerlessness over alcohol mean to you at that time? Um, drink's not an option. Okay. I mean, that's the bottom line. So no matter what, I had to do whatever I needed to do to make sure I didn't have a drink. But I, I knew that. I got that. It was in my heart. Uh, gotcha. Drink's not an option. So I, I meant it when I said I got step one. Now, had I learned it according to what you know, how we do it in AA, in a way I did. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, powerlessness, admitting it, powerlessness is powerlessness. You know, is. Once you, know, you can and, admit that part of it. I'm kind of of the, of the school of thought that um, when I showed up at AA, I was already in step one because that was absolutely an admission that there's a problem here. 
Did I go further into step one? Absolutely. But I think that, you know, if, if you show up to a meeting, unless you're a nursing student or something like that, that's going there to learn about AA, if you think you've got enough of a problem with alcohol that you show up to an AA meeting, you probably belong there and you're well in your way to step one. I like that thing where uh, if you think you have a problem with alcohol, then you are probably an alcoholic. It doesn't take a lot to be an alcoholic. Just thinking I'm an alcoholic or I might have a problem with alcohol is a pretty sure sign that I'm an alcoholic because people who aren't alcoholics don't have any trouble not drinking. Right. So they're not going to get to that place. They're not going to question it. Mm -hmm. They just won't drink. That's right. And it's easy. It's easy for them. It sure is. I found it difficult to not drink. Yeah, because we like the effects. We like the effects. So you got a sponsor. So so at that point, did you start working the steps? No, not really. What happened was my sponsor got a boyfriend. And uh, that kind of ended that right there. Although we're still friends today, Mm -hmm. I kind of started wandering around and the reason I got my second sponsor was uh, she liked basset hounds. I had one that was a I needed to find a home for. She came over to my house to look at the basset hound and looked at me and said, do you have a sponsor? I said, no. And she said, I'm your sponsor. <laughs> I love that. That's exactly how it happened. Once again, not, not coincidence. That's fantastic. Yeah. Sponsor from hell. she was the sponsor from hell sounds like it yeah she was she said you're gonna you're gonna do the big book like the first hundred men and women did yeah you're gonna do you're gonna do the thing yep i needed that direction oh yeah she took over my life pretty much well i didn't have my sponsor didn't take over my life yeah she did she did and i needed it it was just what i needed i mean once again you know nothing happened by mistake i needed someone to come in and take over my life at that time i wasn't paying bills like i said that unmanageability part that i didn't know about because i was in full flight from reality couldn't recognize it in yourself but she certainly recognized uh-huh. it <laughs> well and that's where thank god we've got different types of sponsors out there yeah. Yeah. i, I mean about it. folks sponsor in different ways and some and, and throughout the course of my sobriety i've needed different types of sponsorship yeah 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 eventually we got divorced <laughs> as she put you it you and your sponsor yeah yeah, uh-huh. yeah we got divorced and it took you know something it's funny women in sobriety have a really hard time finding sponsors really yes they do you mean you, you, so you mean someone who's got some time has a hard time finding um a sponsor, i would yeah or, maybe so i mean i or just I, in general I, well why do you say that you know i It's been my experience. It's Uh. been my experience that any time that I I was without a sponsor, that I would go around and ask people to sponsor me, and they couldn't. They either had too many women, they weren't willing to. So I I would go around asking a lot of people, but I went a lot of times where I didn't have a sponsor, so I used, you know, what I call my, my spiritual guides within the program. But I, I found it very difficult when I had like three and six years of sobriety to find somebody who was willing to pick me up. And it wasn't that I wasn't working a good program. It was mm-hmm. more that there just isn't a whole lot of people out there that will sponsor at least people that I wanted to sponsor me. You know, I'm sure there's lots of people that sponsor. Well, I, I w- so. do want to point out, I, I love that you said that um, your spiritual your spiritual guides, I mean, you had a network. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's incredibly important for us to have in place because I can't rely on any one alcoholic right. to be there for me. 
Uh, I need the network. I agree. I've got to have a group of people that are, you know, I, I refer to them as trusted friends. Uh, and my trusted friends are the ones that I'm going to call on. I, you know, I'm going to call my sponsor first. If I can't get a hold of my sponsor, I'm going to try another a former sponsor. And then I'm going to be calling other people that, that, uh, that know me and who practice this program the way that I'm trying to practice this program. Right. right. Yeah. I was also sponsoring women too. So that helps. Oh yeah. Sponsoring. Doesn't it though? Oh yeah. No doubt about it. But it's funny because the sponsor I have now, I had actually asked two years prior and she was not able to sponsor me at the time. So I think it's just timing maybe. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Share an experience of working one of the steps where it was entirely different in reality from what you imagined it was going to be before you started. Okay. Like, so step five. Okay. Which is? Oh, God, you had to ask that, <laughs> didn't you? Um, 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 told yourself, God, and another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Wrongs, that's right. Okay. <laughs> Good. Thanks. Well done. Thank you. Hey, had to take me a minute, you know, hit me right off. You had to run through one through four That's real right. quick, we didn't you? Sh- we should have a copy of the steps sitting out here. No, we, we ought to have them podcasts. hanging on the wall or something. You, gonna, know? you know what? I think I'm going to write the steps on the shades of this window. <laughs> Come on, Michelangelo. So step five. So, so here's the deal. Remember I told you I'd separated from my husband. And when I was about, I'd say about three or four months sober, and mind you, I didn't have a sponsor at this time, I was going through mediation. And his lawyer was there, my lawyer was there, and the, his lawyer started doing my fifth step. Oh. Okay? He started asking me these questions. And, and by the time I left there, I was so rattled and so upset that I was going to take a drink. And I wound up going to a meeting that night. It was a Tuesday night. It's not the same meeting that's there today. And I walked in there. And at the time, they used to say, does anyone feel like taking a drink? That used to be what they said at the meetings. And I said, I do. Mm-hmm. And I did because I was in so much pain. And so I got through the meeting, of course, experienced strength and hope. By the time I left, I felt better, didn't pick up a drink, you know. So my husband had me in a court system for about five years. And what was really funny is by the time we got into court, I probably had about three years of sobriety then, maybe two years of sobriety. And, of course, did my steps, the fifth step. And at the time, you know, I always think the fifth step should be a burning bush type experience. At least that's what my sponsor said. And you feel this lightness and you yeah, go through a, and you're starting to have the spiritual experience bit, you know. and all. And, you know, my life, was, my life was still unmanageable. It wasn't like it wasn't. But I remember going into the court that time and my sponsor said, put God in your pocket. And just go up there and be honest. And I did. So I walked up there, and I'm sitting there. And this, the same lawyer, my husband's lawyer, started asking me the same questions three years later, right? And every time he asked me, I said, yep, I did that. Yep, I did that. And you know what? It had no effect on me whatsoever. It did not. It was like I had already forgiven myself. I had already, you know, I had already let that go, and he kept at it, kept at it. And I remember just saying, oh, God, I don't know if I can take this anymore. And the judge looked at the lawyer, and he said, we've had enough. You need to move on. It was at that point, sitting in that chair, that I realized what the fifth step was about. It it was about not only just, you know, getting it off your chest. It was about self-forgiveness. 
and, and how powerful it was because not more than two years ago, that was going to make me drink. Wow. That's, so, that's a powerful story there. Wow. Forgave yourself your shortcomings and were ready to move on. Well, you know, like I said, I, when you asked what was a powerful step for me, I just realized at that point the power of step five. I realized that when you tell yourself, God, and another human being the exact nature of your wrongs and you throw it out to the universe, that they're gone in a way. Yeah. You know, and of course, step nine helps with oh, that yeah, too. Absolutely. You know, get to do wreckage of the past, which I did make amends to my ex-husband about stuff. You know, I did. And, but that was like, that was the powerful moment for step five. That's when I realized I was going to be okay. Well, you know, one of the things that I love the... Uh, I like bringing all kinds of stuff into into my program and such, but when you name a demon, you take away its power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That type of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happens in step five, is that I have sat down, and, you know, if it's just me and God, it doesn't really work. But bringing that other person into it and naming my demons, naming the things that I have done, the things that, that, have, that haunt me, takes away their power. Well, and I think step five also, you realize, and this is what helped too, is that I was a sick person. Mm-hmm. Not a bad person, but a sick person. And, and it was really the sickness of my disease. Because the truth is, is that when I look back on the person I was meant to be today, doing those things wasn't me. That was part of my alcoholism. Mm-hmm. You know, things that happened were part of my alcoholism. I would not do that today. It wouldn't even right. you know, think about it. So... And the fact that you you, you went to, to and, and mentioned the ninth step too is a big deal because it, you know in taking away the power of these things it doesn't take away that I did them. Mm-hmm. No, it takes away the power of the shame and the guilt that I'm carrying for having done them. Mm-hmm. But I still have work to do. And it helps with the second half of step one, and that my life's Ooh, yeah. unmanageable. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, be, and here's why: because all of a sudden you're willing to admit the things that you've done that you're ashamed of that you don't want to even talk about or even think about. Oh, yeah. And now mine are in public records down in Guilford County Courthouse. (laughs) 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 Okay, I'm going to go look at those public records now. (laughs) Let's get those and put those in the show notes, Sam. Absolutely. I always think that's so funny, though. It's like my fifth step is down in Guilford County Courthouse. (laughs) Part of it, not all of it. I love that. I can't say that I got relief from doing the fifth step, though. Those same things. I didn't get the relief till I made amends. Mm-hmm. And then I wasn't able to completely let go of them and live one day at a time. Mm-hmm. Because uh, they were still there. And I was even once I told my sponsor, I didn't feel like um, I still was. They still had control over me. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that making amends was going to be the thing that was going to change my life because I was able to correct those things that I did, admit that I did them to, to the person that I did them to, and see what I could do to, to make it better. And then from that point forward, I can live one day at a time because I'm not going to be that person anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. That's not the way I'm going to live. Mm-hmm. That person that I was drank. I'm not going to be that person anymore. So I, I look at eight and nine through a different lens also. I think, and it says it in step eight, part of those two steps is forgiveness. 
And making amends for me was was a big portion of it, like for my ex-husband. But it took me a couple of years after that, and I realized that if I don't forgive, then I haven't really completed step nine. You know, if I don't get to that place of forgiveness, because the truth of me, forgiveness is cutting the cord. It takes whatever happened and it puts it in the past where it belongs. If I haven't forgiven somebody, I'm tethered. Right. You know, so so that that kind of is, I think it's a twofold step in a way. I think we, we, we always talk about making the amends of it. We don't talk a whole lot about the forgiveness end of it because people can go and make amends and still hold on. In, in my yeah, mind. that's a really good point. I like that metaphor of uh, that when I'm angry at someone and or and want to fight with someone, we're both playing tug of war, holding on to the rope, and it is possible for me to let go of the rope. Mm-hmm. I I don't necessarily have to continue. Right, it's an option. Right, and quit tugging. I think too, when people think of forgiveness, they think that that means that makes everything right. Yeah, and and it and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make what they did right. What it does is it helps you. It has nothing to do with them at all. Just like the amends it has nothing to do with the other person, whether they forgive you or not. So it's, what if they don't forgive you? That's their stuff, isn't it? I mean, it is. Mm-hmm. I I can only take care of my side of the street. That's why I like that amend, amends part of it. I can go in there and do it. Like my husband said to me, "I'm never going to forgive you." It's like that's okay. That's that's your choice, not mine. You know, well, the, you can you can live with yeah. me. That's, I mean, I, I can't. I will not live in this yeah. anymore. What can I do to to clean things up with you? What can I do to to make better what I've done? And if their answer is nothing, their answer is I hate you. Whatever it is, that's theirs. That's right. I've offered what I can do. I've got to move on with my life. I did not get sober to be miserable. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I heard in a meeting a description of forgiveness. He asked the question, well, where does forgiveness come from? It comes from the part of me that's my higher power. It comes from God. It's the lower part of me is where I'm fighting someone, and the higher part of me is where I'm bigger than myself and forgiving someone else. Right. That's what forgiveness is. So that's my higher power. And if someone doesn't forgive me, then that's their spiritual journey, mm-hmm. and I can forgive them and allow them to, uh, and understand that they're not to a place where they can get to the, to, to a place inside where they're bigger than the situation and can forgive me for my behavior. Right. That kind of took the sting out of it a little bit. No, I really like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. It's a good way to look at it. Yeah. And the working of this these steps has has made it for me to where I'm able to be forgiving of others a lot more than I was. You know, having been in those situations where I've tried to clean things up and have cleaned things up, uh, and I've had situations where I have been rebuffed, it is seeing that person as they are where they are. I can't make this so they will accept this. Mm-hmm. But having experienced that has made me much more aware when someone is doing that to me, when they are, are, are apologizing, trying to make amends to me, and my ability, willingness, mindfulness in the situation to let them and to be gracious, to be accepting, and to forgive them myself 
has come from working this program. Because I was a vindictive son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I've experienced that. Not from me. Oh, no, no. Not from you, Sam. (laughs) You are a spiritual giant. I'm not going to say I'm a spiritual gas giant. That's you. (laughs) Karen, thanks for joining us. Don't go anywhere. Do you like birds? Oh, yeah. Do you see that shape circling around overhead with a little piece of mail in its mouth? (laughs) (laughs) It's not from Hogwarts. (laughs) It's an owl. Owl. It's time for our old timers question. Who are you calling an old timer? You. That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. No matter how long you've been sober, it's still one day at the time. Sunny. Sunny. You can post a question on boiledowlaa.org. Um, we have a question. Oh, good. All right. Jenny from Louisiana asks, how do you take care of your own sobriety and give back? I'd say you old timer. How do you take care of your own sobriety and give back? It By giving back is taking care of my own sobriety. I've got to get my uh, focus off of myself all the time. So we clean up the wreckage of the past. We're talking about the fourth step and the fifth step. And we're talking about making amends so that I can live in the present moment. And what's so what's happening all the time in the present moment is I've got to be thinking of others rather than thinking of myself. Because if I, when I focus on myself, I, well, it's selfishness. That's what selfishness is. So working with others is, it's not even, it's just built into it. It's what I need to do to continue to stay sober. It keeps it green. It keeps, I remember what my drinking was like. The times when I drank fade distantly into the past, into the mists of time. <laughs> but cue, cue the eerie music. <laughs> but, but. I start talking with somebody new who wants to drink. I can remember it, and it comes crashing back into the present. I mean, I remember what it was like. Whew. I can remember drinking, and if it, and it has happened that it's come back up like uh, there's a there's a new bar here called Joymongers. Actually, we were talking about this bar at a meeting re- recently, and it turns out everyone they're doing something right because every alcoholic in that meeting was saying. Yeah, that place. I wish if I could drink, that's where I'd go. There's something about it. It just looks like the place that I want to be. And I've I've actually stood out in front of that place and caught myself staring, going, Don, get out of here. <laughs> I'm an alcoholic. And, you sure are. <laughs> and it comes, it it rises back up. And the way that I'm protected is by turning my attention to others. And, you know, if I'm even when I'm the most depressed, if I can talk to another person and say a a newcomer calls or sponsee calls and I'm I don't want to answer this phone. I don't want to talk to them. At the end of the conversation, I've 
gotten involved in whatever's going on with them, hopefully been able to help somewhat or even not. I've not been thinking of myself and I feel better and it gives life meaning. I mean, what more can you want? So it is the way that we live. All right. Karen, what do you think about that? What's the question again? How do you take care of your own sobriety and give back? And give back. I think um, since we've been talking steps, step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening, you carry the message. And the message is the spiritual awakening. And we practice the principles. And and as I heard Don say before, um, I can't keep it unless I give it away. So for someone whose drinking's not an option, I have to get out of myself because I go right into restless, irritable, and discontent very easily. And I lose the gratitude that we talked about earlier. I I mean, I just lose it all and become very self-absorbed. And then I'm miserable. The more I, I give it away, the more I keep working with people, the more my life becomes manageable, actually. The more more I give, the more time I give into it, the more my life becomes manageable. And and I do a lot. Part of it is, is I have to do a lot because I know my nature is, if I don't commit, I won't do it. No. <laughs> I mean, that's really yeah. true. Yeah. If I don't commit to something, I'm not going to do it. I, I can sit home and, and really... Go through hours of playing games. I'm an addictive personality. I can, Those commitments you know. protect me from myself. Oh, yeah. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And and so I keep myself committed to the program. And that means I have to give it away. And I just find different ways to give it away. That's that's it. I, I don't see how you can do the program and keep sobriety if you're not doing that. Yeah. Karen stole my answer. <laughs> no, seriously. Uh, so it, it is committing to, to being of service for me uh, that, that helps so much uh, because I, I am very easily comfortable in misery even Yeah. to s- just stay at home and be a lump on a log. Yeah. Yep. And I, so I remember, so Friday, Friday I uh, had my first meeting with a new service sponsee and Friday afternoon I was like... Yeah, I'm like, I'm done for the day. It's like, no, I don't, two o'clock or something like that. I'm done for the day. I am really looking forward to just doing nothing. Ah, shit. He's coming over at 6.30. And I said, I'm going to that eight o'clock meeting after that. Those commitments had me doing this stuff where I would have been sitting there eating junk food, watching Netflix, doing nothing. And instead... I got to have a fantastic experience starting the service manual with this guy and then went to my home group where we talked about the ninth step and had a fantastic meeting. And I got to hang out with some friends for a while because the meeting after the meeting is pretty awesome. And none of that would have happened that day. Not that, that's not how my friend feeling good. Yeah, I totally did. Friday evening would not have been like that at all for me. Those commitments that, and Karen, I know you're big in general service too. Right. Uh, so not only is it the direct service of one alcoholic working with another that I really enjoy uh, working with my sponsees, but also the general service side of things. No doubt about it. I love it. And it's something I didn't even know that I would, you know, until I started getting involved with it. And it just opened up a whole new world to see out there. And, and what I didn't expect was the spiritual experiences you get from it and, and the different people and just watching the process 
of how AA functions, you know, because this is our glue. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what keeps us together, and, and yeah, I love it. But I want to say something. I want to ask you something real quick if this happens to you guys, because I heard you say, oh, shit, I have to do something at, at you know, 530. <laughs> well, I, I, I responded to that, too. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's really funny because my mind is like that, and there's my selfish, self-centered nature. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it right there, and that's why I'm saying that's why I have to commit myself because, and even with committing myself, I'm not very gracious all the time. <laughs> totally. You know, it's not like I sit there and go, oh, man, I am so glad I can go out and do this this afternoon, you know. And and that's really when, you know, we're talking about keeping sobriety. That's what kills us is that, you know, I don't want to do this. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I got to do it against my will, even if I have what I call justifiable peevishness. (laughs) (laughs) I was... I was watching a DVD, a movie, and the telephone rang. It was the last 20 minutes, and it was, it was the movie Annihilation. And it had built up to this crescendo, and the alien was there, and they were right in the middle of a battle, and the telephone rang, and it's a sponsee who I knew was having difficulty, and I was going, I don't need to answer this. I can... <laughs> Go to voicemail. And I was like, no. I hit pause and talked. And I'm so glad I did. No doubt about it. It, it, I needed, he needed me, and I was there for him. Mm -hmm. And was, you know, then I hit play and finished watching the the movie. But I have to be willing to do that kind of thing because I didn't want to do it. No doubt about it. And I think that's really funny because alcoholics love misery. Because just that statement you were saying, you know, even though I know I'll feel good and, and I'll feel better and I'll have it, I still don't want to do it. You know, I still yeah. don't want to do it. And yeah. that's just kind of the mindset. You know, <laughs> it really is. So. <laughs> right. it, it is the two-year-old. <laughs> and it, in, in so many ways, it's that thing. So I've, I've said for years that the, the greatest obstacle to me going to the gym is the front door of my house. Uh, it's the <laughs> it's the truth, <laughs> uh, and 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 it's the same thing when it comes to doing these recovery things. It is answering the phone. Mm-hmm. It is going to a meeting whenever I don't have it on my calendar or things mm-hmm. like that. So I, I love the idea that a glass, a drinking glass, is discipline to water. So you put water in a glass, the walls of the glass are discipline. Heavy, man. I know, man. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I may have to go my home and on that one. <laughs> my scheduling is, is my drinking glass. It, yeah. it, the schedule, the calendar that I, I try to live by is the discipline in my life to show up and do the things that I've said I'm going to do. Yeah. I didn't used to show up always. I could change my mind and have a beer or change my mind and have another beer. I was supposed to be home at 7 o'clock, 6.50. I think I can have one more beer. Yep. Oh, God, I so relate with that one. It's 7.50. I so related that. (laughs) I think I can have one more. It's 8.30. It's getting late, but I got time to have one more. Yeah, I remember being at the bars with the babysitter, and I was supposed to be home at 10, and I'd call and say, I'll be home in a half hour. 
half hour later, I'll be home in a half hour. Same thing, you know, <laughs> yeah. just one more. Closing uh, the bar at 2 a.m. <laughs> what, a, what a way to live. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is easier. This is better. No doubt about this it. This isn't just easier. This is better. And all these things that, that I do that are part of the service work and the commitments that I make, the meetings that I go to, the meetings that I sign up to chair, having sponsees, being willing to answer the phone when sponsees call no matter what's going on. All these things are are the things that I put between me and a drink. Mm-hmm. And if you take those you away, go. that drink gets closer and closer. That's exactly right. Yeah. There. You know, I, I think that, that perhaps um, this question comes from a place of how do you take care of your own sobriety and give back. I, I think maybe that comes from a place of... Um, I feel like I need to protect myself and my sobriety mm-hmm. from people that are uh, demanding things of me. And what my experience is, is that I don't necessarily be in a situation where they're demanding things of me, but I have to incorporate other people into my sobriety. Right. Otherwise, it's it's not going to work. Right. So I can't protect it. You have to give it away to keep it. You got to give it away. Here, here. Give up. Crash and burn, baby. <laughs> Let go or be dragged. <laughs> Let go or be dragged. <laughs> Karen, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Thank you so it's been much. Great. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit our website at boiledowlaa.org. Leave feedback or ask a question on the site or email giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous in your city or visit aa.org. Please note, Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. This is Don. Test, test. Test, test. This is Sam. Testees. Testees. I knew you were going to do that.